Hey, while you're opening to Exodus 20, I'm going to give you a quick uh, true or false quiz, a little, little biblical knowledge quiz. You don't have to speak up and embarrass yourself for all your you know, right answers. Um, all right, so true, true or false, the following statements are, are in the Bible. Um, cleanliness is next to godliness. False, right? I mean, otherwise... I mean, come on, how many, how many times did the apostles get to shower? I mean, that's just fl- fl- flawed from the start. Um, how about, uh, what was the second one? I was trying to remember. Oh, God doesn't give us any more than we can handle. I, I quote that up about thinking that, well, you know, Dessa, right? Okay, just, there's something so messed up about thinking that, well, you know, sure, God's never going to take us to a place of desperation, never going to give us the end of our rope where we have to call out to him to help us, right? All right, last one. God helps those who help themselves. Right, but here's the thing. Uh, 2017 Barna study of like professing Christians, church-going people, not, not the, you know, people on the street, you know, never set foot in a church, whatever. These are, these are Christians and in this study, it was like five years ago. That's in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. Um, God helps them <laughs> anyway. All right, so we're going to read Exodus chapter 20. Um, this is, uh, again, in our series, we're calling 20 chapters in redemptive history. Uh, this is an important chapter of the Bible, one that we want you to be familiar with. I'm going to need your help. In your bulletin, the passage is printed and the parts that I'm asking the congregation to read, even if you're at home, um, you know, you can read along. Uh, the, the printed parts that are in bold, I'm going to ask you guys to read along with me. Okay, so I'll read the rest of it, but you read what's in bold. Let's stand in honor of God's word. <clears throat> and here are the Ten Commandments, right? God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in rest days on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. 
You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your words. Thank you for making clear to us who you are and who we are in relation to you and what you expect from us. Lord, we pray that most importantly, we would see the clearest revelation of who you are and what you expect from us in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so in, the, in chapter 20 of Exodus, you know, we've looked so far at how God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush and then delivered them from their slavery in Egypt through the means of the Red Sea. And now they're at Sinai. And it's, a, it's actually a few months later. And, uh, and God is revealing to them what he wants them to do as his covenant people you know, from their slavery, saved, rescued, in order to become righteous, right? To, to become like God in his, in his commandments. But uh, as we're going to see, there's a way that we do our righteousness wrong. <laughs> there's a wrong kind of righteousness. What the gospel is calling us to pursue is, is right righteousness, uh, so we're, we're rescued to be righteous. There's a wrong righteousness that we need to avoid, and there's a right righteousness that we, we want to pursue. So right in the beginning, in verse 1, God reveals who he is, and then he explains what he's done, how he's, he's brought them out of slavery, out of the house of Egypt. And that's his prologue. A lot of theologians look at the first you know, verses of chapter 20 before the commandments, and they look and they see that's a it's very similar to a lot of you know, ways that ancient kings would relate to people and treaties would be made and so on, where there's this greeting, like, a, hey, I'm so-and-so and you're so-and-so, and now let's talk. It's, it's the same way that we begin our letters. You know, dear so-and-so. We begin, uh, actually, it's, it's a little bit weird how we begin our letters sometimes because we're not always very sincere. Like, why is a dear John letter a breakup letter. Why does it begin with dear John? It seems a little inconsistent, right? Or when you have to write that, you know, a letter of response to the IRS after they're auditing you, dear IRS agent, you're so dear to me. I'm so endeared to you and, and you're not, you know, it's like the opposite. And so we've got this integrity issue with how we do our greetings, but God doesn't. God is, God is saying, dear Israel, I love you. And in my relationship of love to you, now let's, let's talk about what that relationship looks like. <clears throat> because we looked at this 
his relationship with Israel, we looked at his heart. We know his, uh, his care for these people who are receiving his God to reveal himself to Moses in the burning bush was the fact that in chapter two of Exodus, God heard uh, their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God was about to act. And what that doesn't say, you know, we're, we're gonna rewrite Exodus two here for a second. What it, what it did not say was that God heard their, you know, beautiful, loud praise songs. You know, he heard their praises. And God remembered how much, you know, they had done for him, how hard they had served him, and how much, you know, money they had given to, you know, whatever. And that God saw the well-behaved people, you know, nice people doing nice things in nice ways. And God knew knew how much they deserved his mercy, right? It's not what Exodus 2 says. It talks about how they were miserable, God heard, and he rescued them. And he comes to them, right? Like there's this default setting in our soul that somehow is under the impression that God helps those who help themselves. That God saves the deserving. That God rescues the righteous. That's not what the Bible says. Consistently over and over again, the Bible says that God saves the undeserving. He doesn't save us because we keep his commands. He saves us in order for us to then keep his commands. People tend to think that God saves us because we don't do bad things. But he saves the people who are doing bad things so that then they would start doing good things. Right, So we have to keep this, this order very, very clear in our heads. God does not save those who, who, who doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps the wicked. He helps us. And this is the story of salvation. Salvation first, and then comes sanctification. You know, God brings the people to himself, and then he makes them holy. Just like we see... Um, if you still got Exodus 20 open, look over at chapter 19, the prior chapter, how you, know, you get this whole picture of what happened leading up to the Ten Commandments, how uh, it's now a, a couple of months later, the third new moon after the people had gone out, and the Lord called Moses out of the mountain saying in verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples and all the earth, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, right? So God is saying, look, the, the order is this. I rescue you, and then I make you righteous. I brought you out of Egypt, and now I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What's a kingdom of priests? Like the priests are the, are the people who have special access to God. They're the holy ones. They get to do holy things in holy spaces. And what God is saying, I'm gonna make all of you priests. You're all going to be things because you're holy people. All of his people 
to be consecrated. And when you hear the word holy in the Bible, you need to think two things. One is different, not of the world, but of heaven, set apart in that sense. But also, like there's a, there's a, a character, a, there's moral and ethical patience to holiness, that we act different. Yeah, God regards us differently, not of the world, but of heaven. But then we start to act differently, not like the world, but like heaven. And this is what it means to be holy as I am holy, as God calls his people in Leviticus 11, right? Be different. Don't be like the world because I brought you out of the world. And I want you to be, I want you to live a life that's consistent with my kingdom now, not the world's kingdoms. We're all rescued in order to become righteous. That's how God works. Now we can embrace that and go, okay, cool. And, and, and then we can take a wrong view of righteousness or a right view of righteousness. So let's, let's look at kind of the counterfeits real quick. One is to try to impress God. And the Pharisees were really skilled at this. They had a wrong righteousness that was fundamentally elitist. It was, it, you know, it's the meme of, well, how do you survive a bear attack? You and your buddy are out on the trail and, you know, the bear comes at you. You don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to outrun your buddy. And that's, the, that's the, the way that the Pharisees were looking at righteousness. I don't have to be as righteous as God's commands. I just have to be righteouser, more righteous than my buddies. You know, when God comes to judge the world, they're going to be piles of smoke and ash, but I'm going to be okay because I'm better than them. And that was this wrong view of righteousness where righteousness is a competition. It's elitist thinking that somehow I can impress God because, you know, I'm better than the rest. And, and so the Pharisees imagined that God was pretty impressed with how right they were living, but they were wrong. Paul exposed this in Galatians. And he said that if a law had been the law, but that doesn't exist. That's not how it works. Later on, he says, all who rely on works of the law, all who rely on trying to check the box and keep all the rules are under a curse. They don't impress God. They're actually under a curse, for it's written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. You've got to do all the things written in the book of the law. You have to keep all of the commandments if you're going to be righteous and right according to the law. It's not enough to keep more of the commandments than Joe or Jane. You have to keep them all or you're guilty of all. You know, you observe all or you break all. And this is why Jesus had to come. Jesus was the only one who kept them all. And because of him, he becomes our righteous representative we get his status as a, a, a rule keeper, a righteous person because of our faith in him. He went to the cross and died as a sacrificial substitute for all of our rule breaking, all of our trespasses, all of our sins. And it's actually by faith in him, not by keeping the law, but by faith in the law keeper. That, that we then are regarded there to keep the law, which condemns us and curses us. And we get this status that we didn't earn, but Jesus earned for us, where God regards us as right 
because of his work, not our work. Because of his righteousness, not our right. In fact, in spite of our unrighteousness. So the Pharisees had this wrong view of being right, thinking that if I keep enough of the rules, if I do better than everybody else, then God's going to be impressed with me. And that's a wrong righteousness. There's another wrong righteousness, and that's not trying to impress God. It's basically ignoring him. It's a way of thinking that I'm right because, you know, well, God doesn't really care too much about unrighteousness. This is kind of a more, if the first one, maybe you'd want to classify that as legalism. Liberalism sort of thinks that God doesn't care about sin anymore. You know, maybe he did in the Old Testament, but we're kind of New Testament people now, and God's really more, he only cares about love. His exclusive concern is grace and love and kindness and, you know, everybody just being okay. And that's another wrong view of of God because uh, this time Paul's not, speaking to the Galatians, but to the Romans. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says that we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So, you know, we don't want to have the wrong righteousness that thinks I'm going to work hard to impress God. You know, good, you're tracking with Paul on that. And then he says, but then Do we now overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Like if you're you're tracking with the gospel logic that says, well, we're not righteous or justified or right before God based on what we do, then we might be inclined to think, then it doesn't matter what we do. You know, Paul says again in Romans 6, what then are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? And he says again emphatically, by no means. So there's, a, there's a, a, another kind of wrong righteousness that thinks that God doesn't care about sin. He doesn't care if I'm right or wrong. And so it's really just a moot question and we can move on and we don't have to worry about righteousness. And we go, oh, well, you know, we know that liberalism's bad, right? We're sort of more conservative Christian community here. But we have to, we have to pay close attention to this because there's, there's, a, there's a side of this horse that we fall off of in our conservative circles. Because the gospel tells us that we're, we're justified and that we're righteous in God's eyes and that we are right, And that leads us to the wrong conclusion that it's more important to be right than to act righteously. It leads us to to making bad um, uh, conclusions about how we should act in certain situations, like at home, where we think that the the real purpose in in this conversation or in this argument is that I prove how right I am and it doesn't matter if I act righteously toward my spouse, toward my kids, toward my parents, right? It doesn't matter if I'm kind, doesn't matter if I'm gracious, it doesn't matter if I'm respectful or honorable. The important thing is that I'm right and I need to prove it and I need you to acknowledge it. So here we are in our conservative circles fall into the same wrong righteousness trap, right? We do it on social media. We think it doesn't matter if this is rude. It doesn't matter if this is wrong. It doesn't matter if this is 
false. It doesn't matter if I've checked my facts. It doesn't matter if this is slanderous. It doesn't matter if this is going to destroy this person's reputation. It doesn't matter if this is even a lie as long as it's in the name of my right cause. I can post it. We fail to act righteously. We fail to care about truth. We fail to care about kindness. We fail to care about love. And we do it with our politics too. It doesn't matter, you know, if, if that candidate is, is completely a train wreck, you know, in terms of, of his or her character. Oh, they're for the right causes. And we fail to act righteously, right? Just because you're declared right, just because the gospel makes us righteous in, in God's eyes and justifies us, doesn't mean we have a free pass to just do and say whatever we want. It's not, that's not, it's going to be a struggle to know what to do with God's commands, right? So on the one hand, we've got this, this compulsive longing to justify ourselves and try to impress God, you know, with all of our good behavior. And, you know, we also kind of fall into the other trap of being tempted to think that God's grace makes his commandments optional, ancillary, no big deal. We can do whatever we want. And instead, we forget that God has rescued us in order to make us righteous. His law is designed to show us what love looks like. So here's the answer. Why do we keep the commandments? How do we do it? Because the law shows us what love looks like. It shows us how to love God, how to love our neighbor. It shows us how God's loved us. Like, I love this um, from one of the commentators that I've been reading. He says that it has well been said that the commandments are God's nature expressed in terms of moral imperatives. Did you catch that? The commandments are God's nature, God's character expressed in moral imperatives. So it's significant that God chose to reveal himself this way rather than in terms of sort of philosophical propositions because it brings it into living color. We get to, as God's image bearers, we see in one another what God is like because we're obeying his commands. We learn how to love one another. We learn how to love our neighbor because God's showing us his character. He's love. Just walk through the first four commandments with me real quick and I'll show you what, what I mean. We're imitating God. There's you know, the right righteousness that God has rescued us in order to embody comes from imitating God, not from trying to impress him, and not from ignoring him, but by imitating him. So he says, thou shalt have... It's actually, it's... Uh, and how, how bitter, angry, jealous that would make, you know, the, 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 uh, the other spouse or whatever. You're going to bring in another lover? No way. Don't, don't bring her in before my face. Don't bring him in front of my face. You shall have no other gods before my face. And the reason why, is because God has no other gods before him. And this gets a little bit, you know, high in the sky theology stuff here, but track with me for just a second. Is there any other deity or being higher than God? No. Therefore, where should God's attention be other than on himself? And the beauty of the Trinity, we don't have time to go into this, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit mean that God always has himself in front of him, collectively, relationally, in community, forever. And they're loving each other and worshiping one another and adoring one another beautifully and in harmony. And, and, and heaven means we get to be brought into that. 
where there's no other God except God before the face of God. And God wants us to be brought into that experience. And I don't have any rivals. Don't bring, don't bring another lover. Don't bring somebody else in here. We need God exclusively. And then he says, you know, don't make any images of me. Don't bow down and worship any of those things. Why? Because God doesn't do that. Because he's given us his perfect image in Jesus. The image of the invisible God. And then we also are made in his image imperfectly, but we are called to be the image of God to the world, to, to, as, to the best of our ability, as we keep these commandments rightly, pursuing a right righteousness, we show the world what God is like. We give them an image of him. So don't go and make one. You are one. And is, to the degree that we point to Jesus, we show them the true image of God. Third commandment has to do with his name, right? Don't take his name in vain. God's name is his, his self-revelation. You know, he, he reveals himself to Moses uh, at the burning bush, and he says, I am that I am. I'm the, I'm the eternal living God, self-existent. You know, and you get all these other names in the Bible that talk about who God is. It's a way of him revealing his character to us. He's Yahweh Rapha. He's the God of of, of peace, Yahweh Shalom. And then, you know, you get to Jesus, the God who saves. Abba, our Father in heaven. And so he takes his name seriously. He wants us to as well, to regard it as holy. It's a means of his self-revelation. What about Sabbath? God rested on the seventh day, not because he was plum-tuckered. <laughs> Whew! You know, he's just satisfied. It's done. It's finished. I'm good. I don't need to do anything more. And, and he made the world beautifully and perfect. And, and we have to enter into that rest too, where we don't have to compulsively add. We can actually enjoy what he's made, what he's done through us and in us. You can't keep making withdrawals without taking the time to make deposits. That's what we're doing on, on Sundays in here. Because the, during the week, our gospel tank, it gets depleted. I know. I need to have my, wind, my, my sails filled, you know, and that happens through worship, it happens through fellowship, it happens through the word and all the stuff that we do on Sundays. So keep it up, you're doing great. So look, Paul says, be imitators of God, therefore. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. He doesn't say be imitators of God in order to become dearly loved children. You're saved and rescued in order to become righteous. Be imitators of God, therefore, because you are his children. And live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's, that's the key. That's why we keep these commandments, because they show us who God is. They show us what he's like, and we are his images, and we want the world to see him too. We imitate what we love. Thomas Watson, one of the Puritans, said that he who loves God, she who loves God, labors to render him lovely to others. Is that you? Have you seen the, the righteousness of God for us, for me? And I am seeking to love him in response as to be imitators of, uh, an imitator of God as dearly loved children, as Christ loved me and gave himself for me. So what does that mean? What well, means that we then labor to make him lovely to others? What would you say 
to living in a community, to be in the kind of church and to be in the to, to, to be leaven and salt and light to our community, to where our city and our county would be characterized by people that honor one another, who, who honor our fathers and our mothers, who's, who as fathers and mothers live honorably, who, who as mothers live as fierce protectors of our home, who are kind and gentle, you know, caregivers, who, who are fathers that, that earn that honor, who, who are just in all relationships of authority, we are showing love and honor and earning love and honor in the ways that we show authority. What would it be to be that kind of community? That'd be, that'd be pretty good. What about a community that is so concerned for the well-being of our neighbor that we endeavor, we, we, we take initiative, we are proactive in protecting life, in guarding life, in, in seeking the, the prosperity and the flourishing of our neighbors' lives. Not just, oh, I'm a, I don't want to do murder. You know? What about kind of the people who aren't stealing but are so joyfully generous, right, that we're sharing our blessings and we're sharing our gifts and and, and I forgot adultery. Oh my goodness. What about the kind of people that are so concerned for the integrity of relationships and marriages that, that we uphold marriage, whether you're single or married or you know, whether you're not married to that person and so on, where you are the, the kind of community and we become the kind of city and county where people's bodies aren't objectified, where people together you know, and down, down the line, the kind of community and city and county where our words are truthful, where we mean what we say and we say what we mean, where you can be dependent on, where people hear what you say and they go, okay, I can take you at your word. And what, what about being the kind of people who, instead of like, oh, gosh, look at their new house, or oh, look at their new, you know, whatever, you're just genuinely glad for their blessings, not coveting, not jealous, not craving their house or their wife or their ox, <laughs> but just genuinely happy for them. And then happy because God's blessed you too. And they're not the same blessings, but I don't need the same blessings because I have a father in heaven who loves me and who gave himself for me. That sounds kind of heavenly to live in that kind of community, to have that kind of kingdom around us, right? Well, that, that is what we're looking forward to. That is what the new heaven and the new earth are going to be like. As completely sanctified people, gloriously transformed so there's no more sin remaining, we will keep the commandments consistently. The commandments don't go away. They're fulfilled in the way that we love one another forever. So in the meantime, we can get in on this today. We can aspire to this today, not by, no, trying to impress God or ignoring the commandments because, well, he only cares about grace anymore. No. We can keep the commandments to show our neighbors, to show the nations. This is what God's like. I want you to know him too. I want to make him lovely to you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the Ten Commandments. Thank you, kind of God you are, what makes you happy, what pleases you, that you've shown us 
even in the form of commandments, uh, a, a, a bit of your character. Lord, you revealed your quality to us. That we know you. And you, you. You've shown us what makes you happy. Lord, we want to make you happy. And, and love does that. We, we, we love the one uh, and we want to make happy the one that we love. Uh, Lord, would you help us to glorify you and to imitate you and to help others know how lovely uh, indeed you really are. We ask this in Jesus' name.